0: certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at in Perth. Sarah Spears Jane Rimmer Kira Glennon.
1: And every time you saw a young girl walking by you think, oh god is she going to be the next victim?
0: Now one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years.
1: For the first time since the Claremont serial killings trial began, today not a single member from the public in the courtroom. Hello, good to have your company for week 16. I'm Natalie Bonjolo Also joining us today for day 64, Tim Clark and forensic expert Brendan Chapman. Tim, I, I guess given the current health crisis, Justice Stephen Hall basically advised people today not to come unless they absolutely had to.
2: Yeah, that's right, Nat. Um, we've been providing sort of daily updates as uh, as we've been going along and, and uh, yeah, there was a little sort of slight... Um, more strict i suppose uh, measures put in place by justice hall today which we're on the lines of if you don't need to come uh, please don't come uh, it's not a blanket ban um, as such on the public attending um, but justice hall said given that the the, the measures nationally were um, made more strict last night with um, now in western australia as in all over australia gatherings of more than two people in any public place is uh, is basically uh, p- uh, uh, banned um then uh justice hall said well, we have to sort of um take that on board in the court as well so the audio recordings um of the hearings um are now in place um so anyone wanting to hear um the the, the uh, proceedings can go onto the WA Supreme Court website. Um, register their interest into that, and they will be given a link. So they can you can now um, hear the the, the court um, from wherever you are, um, which is as I have mentioned, unprecedented. That's never been done before, certainly in this state. Um, And so, as you say, the upshot was uh, that it was just uh, selected members of the media, um, the interested parties and police in court today, um, and obviously the witnesses that we heard from.
1: Yeah, I, I still can't get my head around how much the world has changed in the last 16 weeks. I mean, this trial started with hundreds of people turning up, packing the public gallery, overflowing, spilling into second and third rooms. And now today, for the first time, not one single member of public. It must be so strange to to be there now and to see how much it has changed
2: it is actually. It's it's quite. Um, it's 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 been bizarre all the way along with all the revelations and the interest. And now it's bizarre on the other end of the scale in that we are still here and we are still carrying on. And and Justice Hall is is very determined to do that. But we we now you, you feel a little bit like you're just in a bubble um, yeah. with just yourself and um, and all the interested parties that you've been uh, nodding heads and saying good morning to since since november um but uh, we now you've now feel a little bit cut off yeah. from everything else that's going on out on the outside world obviously you try and stay in touch as much as you can um, but most of your days is, is spent um well, yeah, in isolation. Funnily yeah. enough, um, <laughs> even though there are um, probably a dozen or so of us in court still, um, but you know, we, we, we'll still keep tracking on, and we'll and we'll keep trying to bring, um, you know, uh, the, the the events and the coverage um, to the outside world as much as we can. Um, which I personally believe is probably more important now because yes. otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear at all.
1: Well, that's it. And it's certainly not a lack of interest. People are still emailing us and getting in touch with us. It's just literally the way the world has changed thanks to coronavirus.
2: Yeah, it is it's it is very, you're very aware of it in court, even though um, Justice Hall and, the, and both sides have, have still got, obviously got a very, very important job to do.
1: All right, so today you had two witnesses and both of them were forensic police officers. And what was the main thrust of their evidence today?
2: Yes, so this is um, Sergeants Siobhan O'Loughlin and uh, Jade Sustek. Um, They were both attached to the the special crime um, unit or the the cold case homicide squad um, from uh, 2009 or in 2009 onwards. Um, And they were very experienced, specialised um, forensic officers um, on the physical evidence side of things. So their evidence um, almost exclusively uh, surrounded Jane Rimmer's hair today and the role that they played in uh, locating that, transporting that, and then ultimately um uh, very very detailed um, examination of that hair mass which happened over um, several days in 2009 and then some more days in 2010 and then there were other exhibits that the both those officers were also involved in um, locating and transporting from from um, place to place but that was more continuity so the main thrust of their evidence was uh, was how or they were involved in the very important examination of of Jane Rimm's, um hair mass, which uh, until they basically got their hands on it had had um, sat in in cold storage for um, thirteen years um, after it was recovered um, from her post mortem in nineteen ninety six.
1: And were they asked in detail about the examination of the hair mass, how that actually happened, what kind of state it was in after being being sitting in these freezers for all these years?
2: yeah very much so so we did touch on that last week um, listeners from um, might remember a couple of the officers who were also present, um, uh, particularly one um, George Patton, who who was the scribe on that day or those days when it was being examined. But um, uh, Sergeant O'Laughlin and, and Sustek were the actual people that were doing the examination. So that's that was um, very um, enlightening and interesting to hear how it was done um, today, and we we saw again um, more pictures, in fact, of of Jane's hair and and um, how it presented after all those years in cold storage. Um, The the reasoning behind the way the the examination was done, it was basically teased apart um, the mass of hair and then um, uh, split into five separate sections so they could then uh, really drill down into each examination. And that, uh, as I mentioned, it took four days um, in, in October 2009. And then another... The, the first section of that here actually was again examined in 2010 and um, very significant um, pieces of, of trace evidence um, were found um, and they are now the ones that the prosecution will part some of the ones that the prosecution will use to say there was a direct link between Jane's here and mr Edwards
1: Brendan, how does the examination of hair mass ordinarily happen? Is it a matter of, you know, sifting through uh, with tweezers and trying to see what you can extract?
0: Yeah, it's, it's predominantly a visual, well it is a visual based assessment where you're essentially bringing whatever tools to the table that you can in order to try and identify what might be, uh, associated with or entwined within the hair. Um, this is obviously excluding the analysis of the actual hair for DNA, but um, I think we talked last week a little bit about um, some tools we have, things such as poly lights, which are these alternative light sources that we can use to try and kind of enhance contrast against the hair background. But other than that, it's really um, a matter of just using some really acute uh, observation sort of tools with your with with your eyes, I suppose, um, assisted by kind of low low power um, microscopes or magnifying glasses to pretty much just systematically comb your way through that. And like any um, forensic sort of examination or forensic sort of search, we really want to ensure that once we've searched it, we can categorically say we've searched the entire area. So we use things like um, zigzag sort of patterns in in how we might scan scan across the surface of the hair, same as we would on a large scale if we were searching a large area of land as well. So it's really just kind of scaling down what we do on a much larger scale at a, at a crime scene or, or at a, um, in a bush environment.
1: And Tim... I understand that some of the photos there were uh, ice crystals still on the hair. Did that have to be removed, or did they talk about that?
2: Yeah, they, they did, Nat. So the, this was, um, I suppose, the, the, the longest um, we've ever actually uh, been able to see um, uh, part of 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 either. Kira or Jane on the screen, um, because as listeners would remember, um, the, the the very detailed evidence about post mortems and crime scenes um, were done behind um, the screens um, for sensitivity reasons. Um, so today, seeing all these photos of of Jane's here, um, it really did strike me. Um, how personal and how intimate those examinations must have been, particularly for two um, female officers, um, as experienced as they were. Um, I mean, they were asked to do a very sensitive Role in 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 a couple of ways. Obviously, very sensitive in terms of what they were trying to achieve, um, the detail that they had to do, the the, the minute um, detail on um, a hair sample that one of the officers said was very brittle, very. Um, uh, fragile because of how long it had been in that frozen um, environment, but sensitive also. Um, in, in terms of you are dealing with the hair of a young woman that 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 um, that was um, killed so so callously and so um, brutally. So yeah, and and those pictures really did uh, bring it home. So that the, the hair had been in the bucket for um, thirteen years. Um, Sergeant um, Sustek said that was the first time she ever actually encountered an ex- uh, an exhibit of that type, having been in. Kept in a bucket like that for so long, um, and the mere fact that it had been kept in the bucket mean that meant that the hair had taken up the shape of the bottom of the bucket. So it had to be first, as you said, that the crystals, the ice crystals, had to be taken out, and then there was some hair and other matter that had adhered to those ice crystals. So they were placed in a yellow top container um, for further examination later on. Then the hair was taken out. And it had to be um, thawed out um, uh, and then dried, um, so it would be easier um, to um, or possible actually to to be examined in the way that it needed to be. So then it had to be placed on a piece of paper in a bag, then taken to a drying room, at another police station where it was left for several days to dry out and it had to be brought back very gently and that is when the 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 separation of the hair into manageable um, portions was done that took um, a a day in itself and then the detailed examination of each of those um, portions of the hair were done over several more days so it, i mean it's an extraordinary thing um, to to think that all those uh, all that experience um was in that room for for so many days um for um, just to examine it, it, what was in, in effect a, a one mass of hair but um we we would now say or well, the prosecutors certainly would now say that was vitally important work um given um, what they say was found during those examinations
1: Yeah, I mean, it must absolutely be a painstaking process in in many ways, as you mentioned, Tim. And Brendan, Tim was mentioning how the uh, witness said that the hair was brittle and it broke easily. Is that a common um, problem in this situation where the hair mass has been frozen?
0: Look, to be honest, the the examination of a hair mass, like holeless, bolus like that, isn't isn't a, um, a hugely popular sort of exhibit to come across, um, so I can't can't speak firsthand about having um, experienced that. But I could kind of, um, I mean, when we when we do things like cross section hair, as in when we want to try and cut a hair through its breadth um, or width, sorry, um, we we actually do freeze it to make it more um, amenable to shearing and and kind of break to, to break through so um there's a couple of kind of guesses i could have around what might be the cause of that one is it, obviously if the hair still ha- is frozen in any way then um that's that's what's going to be uh, kind of at play there um because there is a very small amount of water content um in a hair shaft so therefore if it's frozen that water will freeze and therefore you kind of have this hair uh ice block I suppose Um, but further to that the whole process of um, freezing and thawing um, does have an effect on proteins and and um, other kind of biomolecules that that would make up a hair so I could imagine that um, that freezing and thawing process could certainly denature or damage some of those proteins which would lead to um, a hair being more brittle I suppose
1: so it's not, I mean, from what you've seen, it's not really a very common procedure um, that um, a mass would be kept like this and then gone through, you know, in such great detail at a later date.
0: I've, I've been to a few postmortems where we certainly have retained um, the, a mass of hair. That's, that's probably not so uncommon. Um, but... It's usually retained, kind of, as what a, um, like a, I suppose, a one percenter, um, or what if we need to go to this at a later stage, and and usually we resolve we resolve the case, or we don't need to get to the point of having to examine that, and that can likely be returned with the body and and given back to um, a family, I suppose, but. Obviously, this in in this instance, it is a one percenter and it's and it's come through with, I guess, the one per cent.
1: Yeah, Tim, um, did the witnesses talk about once they'd done their examination, what happened next?
2: Yes. So, um, and it was uh, it was it was a very long examination in the in the first instance that, as I say, for over four days in October two thousand and nine, and then there were various instances after that that they returned to um, the evidence and and other other, other pieces of evidence. Um, but once again, this this, this evidence was. Not scene setting because obviously the both both the office results were actually doing the examination, but we didn't get to what they found. Um, mm. As such, um, they were um, Sergeant um, O'Loughlin this afternoon said the the examination in 2010 was very fruitful. force, said there was significant amount of trace evidence found in that in that second. Um, uh, uh, look at at that at the first area of hair, if you like um but this was the actual mechanics of it and what it what it was um what it resulted in in terms of forensic evidence um we are hoping um, to get to over over the next couple of days
1: yeah was there any discussion about the conditions under which the hair was examined what sort of room they were in and those sorts of things
2: yeah, again, um, very closely looked at, and that was the, the main focus of the cross-contamination that was done today. Um, and it, it, was, it was, given it was 2009, we're talking about now, obviously, things at the Chem Centre and at Pathwest at that time had moved on technologically for, um, compared to the DNA um, evidence that we talked about for so long. And uh, interestingly, one of the rooms that they did do the examination in was one of these pressurised rooms that we did and we talked about um, a little bit, which we're, by it means that the air pressure, um, a little bit like on an aeroplane or um, when you open the door, um, it, nothing can blow in um, or, or nothing can be... Um, evacuated out either um, because it was pressurized so that is designed specifically to maintain the integrity of the environment um, that they were they were looking in and the inevitable questions about um, uh, personal protective equipment PPE were asked um, and it was it was obvious very obvious at that time that they were very aware of the potential of contamination because it would appear that um, uh, PPE was was uh, absolutely prevalent in all the examinations. In fact, Sergeant O'Loughlin uh, let a, a little bit of a trade secret slip when she described wearing a bunny suit um, during for one of the uh, one of the examinations. There were a few little eyebrows raised, but that's not that wasn't she quickly explained that wasn't um, in the Playboy sense. That was <laughs> what um, what the examination um, scientists referred to when they talk about their coveralls, their throwaway suits Coveralls that, um, uh, that that they were um, they're aware of wearing wherever they go in a forensic um, sense, and I'm sure, Brendan, you would have uh, you would have donned a bunny suit a, a couple of times in your um, crime scene experience, wouldn't you? Yeah.
0: I certainly did, and I never really <laughs> worked out why they're called a bunny suit, but bunny suit it is. <laughs>
1: Would would um, would the way they are using protective gear be the same, or would that be even enhanced nowadays, Brendan? Beyond a um, bunny suit. Look,
0: good question. Um, not that I'm aware of, because um, with any sort of PPE, um, we're really trying to create a barrier, I suppose, between what the the examiner is wearing and the exhibit. Um, But we also do know that some of those um, bunny suits, for want of a better word, can actually um, come with their own um, fibres that can be um, transferred, I suppose. So um, the, the main thing is knowing... It's a little bit like DNA and DNA contamination. If you know the source, you can account for it. But if it's when you can't account for the source. So if you do have foreign fibres, for instance, appearing in a scene and you can attribute it to a particular piece of PPE or a particular um, uniform or a particular type of clothing that was worn at the scene, then it's kind of not really a a big issue if you can account for it. So it's much the same as DNA. If you can account for it, it's less of an issue. Um, It's really when you get those kind of, we can't account for this, could it be You know, something that was legitimately left there at the time of the offence or could it just be incidental
1: I'm curious at what point would a forensic examiner now put on their protective gear is it before they get in the car to drive to a scene or to the lab um, or is it when they get to the lab because obviously we're talking about the idea that fibres from the car have been transferred into um, the examination room so when do they put their gear on
0: uh, it kind of depends on what sort of gear you're talking about, and where, and, and what sort of a lab or environment you're talking about. But most um, modern labs, or even when you establish a scene um, out in 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 the, in the real world, um, you kind of have these donning and doffing or gowning up areas, which are uh, external to the actual crime scene or external to the lab, but close enough that you're not you know, wearing it as you're as you're traipsing through a, a busy office before you get into the lab. So um, there's no sure fast answer on that. But, I mean, to use a lab scenario, you would pretty much be gowning up in the PPE immediately before entering the room or uh, within a small entry area to a room before the room. And, and you'll hear about a lot of this um, with the coronavirus um, mm sort of uh, isolation rooms and things like that where nurses and medical practitioners are doing exactly the same thing. They're walking into a first room um, and donning uh, their PPE and then they go into the second room. And there could be various stages there of once you enter the, the room after the donning and doffing room, you may then put on another layer. Um, it all depends on what the analysis is and, and what sort of... Um, or what the laboratory uh, procedures are.
1: Yeah. On that, Tim, were the witnesses asked about the cars they drove and those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, they certainly were, Nat, the uh, the regulation question. Um, and the, the answer is pretty simple. There was one car um, that the forensic team had access to, uh, a, a Toyota Prado, um, so that seem to cut off that um, line of questioning at the pass Um, but uh, we will hear a lot more about cars this week I've been told Um, some of the later witnesses this week scheduled um, will delve very deeply into um, Mr. Edwards's car which um, was seized um, the actual car that he was driving in 1996 and 97 and police managed to locate that and so that was seized on the same day that he was arrested so my understanding is that the officer who who, um, um, who did that seizure um, in December 2016 will um, be on the uh, witness stand at, um, at some point this week Yeah. Um, and then there will be lots more about um holdens in general um and and the car and the fibres that come or from those um from those holders or the materials that were used in those holders at that time and um and whether they were a match. so yes, we we'll hear a lot about cars um, in the coming days.
1: I guess just like the DNA evidence as the trial progresses, the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle will start to fall together for us again. Um, Brendan, we have a question for you from Alicia. With Jane's hair mass being frozen in a billy bucket, is there any chance of losing fibre evidence due to the drying out process?
0: Uh, Not that I'm aware of. I think we talked a little bit about that last week, Mm. whereby once it's in the bucket and secured in the bucket, um, it, it will be there for as many years later as we come back to it. To my knowledge. I'm not aware of any fibres uh, breaking down or, or, or disappearing um, during freezing.
1: Yeah, uh, Tim, do you know what is coming up tomorrow? Yes,
2: yeah, so we should have some chem centre um, um, staff members tomorrow who were also involved in some of the examinations um, of the hair um, masses of both Jane and Kira. Um, and then I understand um, uh, we might hear tomorrow, but More probably on Wednesday, we will hear from James Robertson, who is um, a a world-renowned expert in both fibre analysis and hair analysis, um, was running um, a very senior part of the Australian Federal Police in Canberra and was the man who was um, at the forefront or the the pinnacle of the um, investigation done by the AFP for those um, several years um, into the Hairs. So um, that's that's what I understand that um, that we have coming up in the next couple of days, which will be very interesting because it, it will be through Dr. Robertson, I think, that we will get to some of um, the actual results of, of what um, prosecutors say they found. And in Jane's case, um, that is uh, more than 20 fibres that... Um, the prosecutors say were found over those various um, examinations in 2009, 2010, through to, right through to 2012, and and those fibres were both um, grey and blue. Um, which uh, sounds very simplistic now. I'm sure we'll get a lot more detail because the grey ones, um, as we've said, are, are said to come from that commodore that Mr. Edward drove, and the blue ones are said to come from the shorts that um, he was he was wearing or and pants that he was wearing as part of his work for Telstra. So that's the rest of the week mapped out. But who knows? Nat? it's uh, an ever changing, uh, ever changing scenario, as we uh, as we all know.
1: And given the strict border controls now across the country, James Robertson, I suspect, will be a video link...
2: Very much so, unless he wants to, uh, (laughs) well, he might well want 14 days quarantine on (laughs) Rottnest Island or in a hotel, but um, I doubt very much that would uh, aid the smooth running of the trial. So that will be um, a video link. Um, And then I've also been told that one of the um, Holden executives who will be given general evidence um, about Holden cars and and the material he's used at the time will actually be given um, uh, his uh, evidence from China, so um, I doubt that he'll be making the trip either. So, uh, so yes, we will be um, travelling um, to various parts of the globe um, via the wonders of technology, uh, but hopefully it'll all work and we
1: can all keep going. And with witnesses today in person or video link?
2: No, Sergeant Sustek and we were in person, um, in uniform, um, and we're... Um, yeah assured by Justice Hall that the uh, witness box had been fumigated and um, uh, and cleaned in between appearances. So absolutely every single measure is being taken to um, make sure that uh, um, no nasty virus might, um, might uh, derail our, our trial here.
1: OK, great. Well, thank you both so much. Um, thank you, Brendan. You're in self-isolation at home and Tim's in a semi-self-isolation <laughs> in court. We'll be back tomorrow for Day 65. That's with Tim Clark and Alison Fan. Join us then for Claremont in Conversation.
0: This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of The Seven Network and The West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Flashpoint.
1: Returning to 7 on Mondays at 9pm. Demanding change and discussing issues that matter to West Australians.